a whole lot of disagreement in our world today. We all seem to have something inside of us that senses fairness is somehow simply right. Or at least most of us do, right? The news is filled with these stories lamenting the lack of justice in our world. Campaign after campaign is started seeking justice for this person or, or that cause. Children know it's not fair. It is a valid and a reasonable thing to say. And yet life is very, very much not fair. Life is not fair. Somehow, despite that, we still have this hope and this sense and this longing, I think, that one day it will be. Let me give you a trivial example here. Um, the other day I was driving to work and there's one of those sets of traffic lights which closes down half the road. You have to take turns going your way, so you're being a dutiful and obedient guy. I stopped at the red light and when the light went green, well, I, I, I proceeded on through, only to be greeted at the other end by a lady sat in her car at the next traffic light, gesticulating wildly in my direction, mouthing things I was glad I was unable to interpret successfully. It was abundantly clear. She thought I had blatantly run a red light. I should be ashamed of myself. She wagged her finger at me. Have you had somebody wag their finger at you? Ah, I could just feel a tasty rejoinder welling up inside of me. You don't understand, lady. The light was green. You don't understand. I have done nothing wrong. I've done nothing to be ashamed of. You have no right to wag that little finger at me. I, I thought about protesting. I, I thought about my job and how this could look. So I, I, I just carried on. I just carried on and I tried to put it behind me. And, uh, you know, I, I knew inside that I was right all along. But injustice eats at you. I was, I was thinking, you know, well, maybe, maybe a passerby will stop the lady and tell her, no, no, the light was green. You didn't see it. The light was green. Maybe later on she'll look on Facebook and there'll be this big story about how, in fact, the timing on the traffic lights was set completely wrong. I want to find, I want to find, I want everyone to know that actually I was doing the right thing. That's a trivial example, but there is so much injustice in our world. There are so many things that never really get sorted out. But still inside us, we do have this longing for justice, don't we? It's wired in somehow like a, like a default operating system. We long for everyone to know we were right. We want everyone to know we were innocent. We, we have this overwhelming urge to be vindicated, to be proved right, to shout it from the rooftops so everybody knows. Like Owen said, we're carrying on our journey through the, the ancient book of Isaiah written hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. And right now, if you've joined us, we've come to a, a particular section which is so profoundly connected to the very center of our faith that we're taking it extra slow. Today we have exactly three verses. Glad we don't take it at this pace the entire time or we would never make a dent in the Bible. But the three verses we're looking at today 
They're very significant. They're ones um, picked up in a famous story in the New Testament. If you know your Bible stories, perhaps you'll remember the story of the, the Ethiopian eunuch and his strange desert inter- encounter. As he travels down a road by chariot, he's reading a scroll, reading the scroll of Isaiah, this very book that we're looking at today. He gets to exactly the section that we're reading today. And all of a sudden, the Spirit brings Philip alongside him. And Philip, we're told in Acts, Philip uses this very passage of Scripture, exactly what we're reading today, to tell him the good news about Jesus. So the Bible tells us we're on pretty safe ground when we read these verses as if they're speaking about Jesus. Even though when they were first written, there would have been very few people who imagined anything of the sort. We're going to read them. We're going to reflect on what they show us uh, about Jesus and about injustice. I think God has things to say to us today through his word still. So let's pray and then we'll read. Father God, you promise that your word has extraordinary power. Please would you let it be that among us today. Speak to us through these ancient words. Uh, May we hear your voice and see you. Amen. So we're going to read from Isaiah 53. And if you've got one of these um, red church Bibles, it's on page 742. uh, Page 742, Isaiah 53. We're going to read from verses 7 to 9. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich, In his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is God's word to us. So we started today with this idea of injustice. And can you see how clearly the injustice of what is going on with Jesus is highlighted in these few verses. He's oppressed. He's afflicted. He's cut off from the land of the living. That just means he died. And that's why it moves on to talk about his grave. He was buried. Why? Well, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus never 
did anything wrong, not one tiny little thing, and yet he suffered this terrible death. Now that, that is an injustice. And the response of the watching world, his generation, that's what the passage calls them, in verse 8, his contemporaries, the ones around him, what do they make of this massive injustice? You get a whatever. Right, you get just a, a shrug of the shoulders. If you think about the people who really experienced this, think about the people who were there uh, alongside Jesus and around him in this central story of Christianity. As he went through that sham of a trial, as he was uh, arrested, as he was tortured and beaten, as he was killed, can you imagine the people around him acting with that level of indifference? Well, perhaps we can. Perhaps in a world that is so filled with injustice, maybe one more doesn't feel like that big a thing. Perhaps many of the bystanders are simply just numb to it. Uh, At the time, the Romans are in charge of Jerusalem. I'm sure it's not an easy thing. Perhaps for the few who are Roman citizens, well, they've got the hope of justice. They've got some confidence. But for the majority of people, for the masses, I imagine injustice just felt like the way things were, the way they were always going to be. I imagine it was just the norm. You know, bad things happen to good people, they would say to each other. Life just sucks. Get used to it. That's just the way it is. Can, Can you imagine that? I am sure there are many people in our world today who feel the same. Think of the the refugees fleeing their homes. Do you think they have very much hope for justice? Or or those who stay behind in Aleppo, those trapped in Mosul as the army advances, those who are going to get driven out of the, the refugee camp in Calais. Do you think injustice is a surprise to them? Do you think they would protest one more? Or maybe they would just shrug too. So perhaps, perhaps after all, we shouldn't be that shocked at the, the passivity of the crowds as this great injustice is carried through on Jesus. But I tell you what we should be shocked by. We should be shocked by Jesus. I, I think that's what today's text really wants us to see, to focus on how Jesus responds in the midst of all of this. And how does the passage tell us he responds? Well, verse 7, he did not open his mouth. It's repeated just in case we missed it. He did not open his mouth. Jesus is right at the heart of this very injustice. And if anyone knows, his utter innocence is him. He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't protest. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't shout and stamp. He doesn't fight back. He's silent in the middle of it. Jesus' silence is something that every one of our four Gospels picks up on, some of them repeatedly. Matthew 27, 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Mark 14, 60, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? 
What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Luke 23, 9, he, he plied him with many questions, but, Luke gave him, uh, but Jesus gave him no answer. John 19, 9, even basic questions. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave no answer. All the Gospels highlight Jesus' silence in the midst of this drama that's unfolding. But in fact, it goes further than that. Jesus isn't just silent in the middle of it. He's, he's passive. One, one commentator reflecting on this passage says, the servant does nothing, the servant says nothing, but he lets everything happen to him. Have you ever wondered about why Jesus did just go gentle into that good night rather than raging against the dying of the light? Dylan Thomas would have him. Why does he behave this way? I want us to consider some of the different options, some of the different answers together. Is it just that Jesus shares this kind of hopelessness that I've been talking about, this overwhelmed by the injustice of the world, that he sees no point in protesting or resisting? I don't think we can really consider Jesus that way. He's just not the hopeless type. He doesn't take things lying down. Read a gospel. Read one of the, the life stories of Jesus. And you meet a Jesus who burns passionately, brightly. A, a Jesus who is ready to stand firm in the face of anything and everything. A Jesus who is filled, I would say, with unrelenting hopefulness. So I don't think we can interpret Jesus' silence as just reflecting. He's sharing this hopelessness the world around us. I don't think that makes sense of it. Okay, what other options have we got? Maybe it's a stunned silence rather than a hopeless one. Is all that happens to Jesus in those final hours really just an unfortunate accident? Is he shocked? Is he, as we might often hear, just this terribly misunderstood teacher of good? Someone whose platitudes about loving your neighbor accidentally stir up this hornet's nest of resistance that sees him killed? Douglas Adams puts it this way. Was Jesus just nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change? Is that all it is? Does Jesus just suddenly find himself in the eye of a storm of his own making? powerless to do anything about it? Is that why he's silent? He's just gobsmacked at what's going on. How things suddenly turned ugly? Now the picture here in Isaiah that we read about of a lamb being led to the slaughter of a, of a sheep awaiting shearing, well that, that might seem to suggest a lack of awareness actually, right? The sheep comes to the guy with the knife What's going to happen? Is he going to get a haircut or dead? So is that what Isaiah is telling us? Jesus is silent because he doesn't see what's coming? That one doesn't wash at all either. Jesus knows perfectly well what's coming. We saw that 
in the story that Owen read to us early in the service of Jesus' final hours. You'd see it again and again if you read through any of the stories of Jesus' life, any of the Gospels, the, just before where we picked up the story today. Jesus tells his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Again and again in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shows what is ahead for him is no surprise to him at all. Okay, so what, what other options have we got here? Why is Jesus silent and passive in the middle of this? Perhaps the truth be told it is because he's powerless. Facing a, a crowd who've turned against him, facing the, the, the Jewish authorities, facing the might of the Roman Empire. Is Jesus silent simply because he's powerless? No. We radically misunderstand Jesus if we think his role is that of a powerless victim in the middle of this story. If we think that's why he's silent, think back to what we read earlier of those final hours. Impulsive Peter lashes out. Jesus stops him. Not because Jesus knows his ragtag band of disciples and their few swords have no hope of changing what's happening. Now, do you remember what Jesus told Peter he could have done if he wanted to fight? Matthew 26, 53. Do you not think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 12 legions. Twelve legions of anything is a lot. Twelve legions of cats is a lot. Uh, uh, at this stage in the development of the Roman military, a legion is over 5,000 fighting men. So twelve legions, that's more than 60,000 angels. And remember, what, what are angels? They're not to be messed with. One angel in one night, Isaiah 37, 36 says, strikes down 185,000 Assyrians. One angel. Imagine 60,000. Jesus has plenty of firepower at his disposal. If he wanted to fight, it would have been over very quickly. Think a uh, pea shooter versus nuke. We have this completely wrong if we think Jesus is the powerless victim. In fact, of course, Jesus wouldn't even have needed to fight. He could have just pulled the plug on the whole thing. The Bible tells us Jesus is at the very center of creation, that he is the one through whom all things are created, but it tells us more than that. It tells us that he is the one who sustains creation. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. He's the one in whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 to 17. If we imagine this universe as we often do as a sort of giant clockwork, okay, God has wound it up and it has an existence that's of its own that's going to continue by itself. God can take his hands off and back away from it and it will just keep running. That's how we think about it, isn't it? But it doesn't work that way. Creation is only here because Jesus sustains it, upholds it, 
in every moment. That's what the Bible tells us. It doesn't. It cannot stand alone and apart from him. So all Jesus has to do is remove his hand and it's finished. The show's over. Our whole world, it's like, it's like a game running on your Xbox. Somebody pulls the plug and it's gone. So imagine him in the garden still. Imagine him walking that path to the cross still with his own hand upholding all creation. Even as it turns on him. At any moment, he could have turned around and with one word put an end to it all. Enough is all it would have taken. Jesus is no powerless victim in the middle of this story. He's not hopeless in the middle of this story. He's not surprised by what's going on in this story. He's not unaware of what's going on in this story. In his silence, in his apparent total passivity, in fact, Jesus is the lead actor here. Jesus is the one in this drama who is running the show. He's the one who chooses the path that leads to the cross. He chooses to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew exactly what waited for him there. Luke 9, 53, his face set towards Jerusalem. He chooses to go to Gethsemane, even though he knows who is going to arrest him there. He chooses to be taken prisoner, even though he knows what they plan, the injustice of a fake trial, and where it would lead. Every step Jesus takes is deliberate. From the cradle all the way to the cross, Every single step he takes is a willing step. It's not a forced step. He's not cornered. Why is Jesus silent and apparently passive? Because he chose the cross. He chose to obediently submit. He chose to walk the path his father had set out for him because as he knew in Gethsemane, as he himself prayed, there was no other way. Matthew 26, 39, we read, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, Jesus asked. The cup here, symbolizing God's wrath as we, we saw a few weeks back. Jesus must bear God's wrath. It is not possible. There is no other way. A few verses later, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Willing submission is what we see here. Jesus doesn't open his mouth, but instead goes quietly to the cross because he is willing to. The terrible injustice we read of in these verses in Isaiah 53, the injustice that we watch as Jesus is led to the cross, feels for all the world like anyone, like everyone should protest it, and yet nobody does. Here's the remarkable thing. Right in the middle of this terrible injustice, at its heart, God's perfect justice is being worked out. Isaiah 53.8, as we read today, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. It is justice being worked out on him instead of on us. Last week, the text we looked at drew us to focus very much on this idea of substitution, of him in our place. That's what the heart of what Christians 
believe Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the punishment for our rebellion, our unwillingness to submit. He took it in our place. This week, I think the heart of what we're reading is not just the substitution, but that he did it willingly. He didn't get sucked into it helplessly. He didn't fight it. For us. Jesus' willingness is significant here. If you were with us last week, you remember we talked about the Jewish Day of Atonement, this ceremony and these goats. The wrongs of the people were metaphorically laid on the scapegoat and it was driven out to die. In the same way, we talked about how all our wrongs are laid on Jesus and taken away by him. The goat didn't deserve to die, just like Jesus didn't deserve to die, taking it in our place. But here's what Jesus' willingness adds to this picture. The goat, you see, did not choose to be there. The goat didn't put itself forward for that role. The goat didn't say, yes, I'll do it. Send me out into the desert to die. But Jesus did. He is more than a blameless scapegoat carrying away our sins. He is a willing one. A, a willing substitute. And that is exactly what we need as people who are willing sinners. We actively choose to rebel against God, to turn away from him. Jesus actively chooses to submit to God. It's what it takes to free us from the punishment we were due. A willing substitute for willing sinners. God's perfect justice is working out here. End of the story. I think there is one more thing here for us. Peter, uh, Jesus' disciple, the one we read about ready to fight in the garden, he reflects on Jesus' silence in a letter he wrote long after Jesus has died. He's thinking specifically of this passage in Isaiah. Here's what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 20. He says, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's Peter quoting Isaiah 53, 9. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Listen to how Peter finishes this. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's God. I think we get a glimpse here into Jesus' heart, into how he walked this path toward the cross. His silence in the middle of this injustice and his sufferings, his complete obedience. What makes it possible? Jesus 
entrusts himself to him who judges justly. Jesus walks this silent path for us, but he walks it also with an utter confidence in God. He put all his trust in God, confident that God would ultimately bring justice. And in fact, I think we see this when Jesus does choose to break his silence. As he hangs on the cross a little later in Matthew's telling, Matthew 27, 46, tells us about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Often we interpret this as a cry of desertion. The, the father turned his face away, we sing. The moment Jesus was utterly forsaken by God for our sins, but perhaps actually we're seeing something different. Perhaps we're seeing Jesus' complete trust in his father to the end. The trust Peter tells us Jesus had as he silently suffers. Perhaps what we see here is actually Jesus crying out to God for vindication of that trust, calling for it not to be in vain. You see, Jesus quotes there from Psalm 22, and it's a remarkable psalm. We we won't read it just now, but perhaps you should read it later today. Like Isaiah 53 just matches so closely the final events of Jesus' life. Psalm 22 does as well. It's as if it was written for Jesus' crucifixion only hundreds and hundreds of years before it happens. It connects to so many details of those last hours, just like Isaiah 53. What I want you to see right now, though, is what it says about Jesus entrusting himself to God, the one who judges justly. That's what Peter has told us is Jesus' motivation in this silence that we've been reflecting on. It starts with what looks like this cry of desertion. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. It starts with this cry that Jesus echoes on the cross. But that is not how it ends. The psalmist pleads for God to intervene through the psalm. And then, when we get to verse 24, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And then the psalm continues. It finishes with these words. They will proclaim his righteousness, a vindication of Jesus' absolute righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Jesus walks the path silently. Peter tells us confident because all his trust was in God and that trust was validated. Jesus borrows the grave of a rich man like we read here in Isaiah 53, but he won't need it for long. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and Jesus himself tells us In John 10, 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. There's a lot going on here, isn't there? Good thing we're only taking this three verses at a time. But what difference does all of this make to our everyday lives? This shocking silence, this willing submission, our willing substitute, his confident silence, his trust vindicated as he rises. That's good stuff, but so what? Three quick take-homes for you as we come to a close. First, I think Jesus shows us we can confidently hope for justice. Uh, as we carry on in this world that is so filled with injustice that it seems like it multiplies all around us, we should have a better hope than the world around us. Government, sure, it can have some impact. Reform, sure, that can have some impact. Getting involved ourselves, yes, do that. It can have some impact. There is an earthly hope for a world where things are not quite this way, but our ultimate hope in the face of injustice is not that we are somehow going to fix it, that God will. In the end, there will be justice, nothing overlooked, nothing undone. That's sure and certain. That's a, a, a guarantee. And that really helps when you find yourself the victim. Really helps when you find yourself the victim, knowing that justice is sure in God's hand. I think second, we've got to see the, the price of sin. Willful rebellion, our choosing, our own free choosing against what God has told us. There's no small change with sin. The wages of sin is death. Every sin, sometimes we can, we can think there's small fry sin. We can think the little acts of disobedience, well, they just don't add up to that much. They're not that much of a deal. Don't sweat the small stuff, we can tell ourselves. Surely it doesn't matter that much. Oh, but it does. Willful sin needs willing sacrifice. It doesn't just cost the blood of a bird or a goat it costs Jesus, so have this high price tag on sin in your minds this week as you approach the endless small decisions that make up your every day. As you're choosing the way you will go again and again, there's no small change with sin. It flows right out of God's ultimate justice. Nothing at all will go unnoticed. But third and finally, the key thing I think we see as we think about our sin, we have a chance to know Jesus' love for us, to see the extent of it, to see the lengths to which he went for us, which he was willing to go to for us, for you, for me. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. His actions define love in our vocabulary. He chose that path. He willingly chose that path because he loved you. 
and you might not feel like you're worth it, you should know that you never deserved it. You will never deserve it. But it's actually true. Jesus loves you. And he's demonstrated it. He's proven it. Because of him, this perfect justice that we know is coming holds no fear for us. We'll live again just like Jesus lives again. In fact, we'll live again because Jesus lives again. Thirty seconds to reflect on these things, and then I'll pray.